Hello, I am Rowan Braithwaite, and this is Players, Goods, and Information, my podcast. Um, I realized last episode I said I would be recording the Hermit background as well, and I totally forgot to do that. I was pressed on time. So this episode will be a continuation of the Sorcerer, with all of the Sorceress Origins that I did not record, and the Hermit background, as well as two monsters. I really hope you enjoy To start off with our class, we have a continuation of the Sorcerer. From last episode, you may remember that I had to cut it short. I had meant to continue with all of the Sorceress Origins, but stopped at Divine Soul in the Xanathar's Guide to Everything. I read about most of the stuff from the Player's Handbook, and then went on to read Divine Soul. And so, in this episode, I will be reading Shadow Magic and Storm Sorcery, and all of their abilities as well as the Hermit background, the Gnome race, and two monsters, which you will later find out about at the end of the episode when I begin to talk about the monsters. Let's start right off with Shadow Magic, the Sorceress Origin, the second in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. You are a creature of shadows, for your innate magic comes from the Shadowfell itself. You might trace your lineage to an entity from that plane, or perhaps you were exposed to its fell energy and transformed by it. The power of shadow magic casts a strange pall over your physical presence. The spark of life that sustains you is muffled, as if it struggles to remain viable against the dark energy that imbues your soul. At your option, you can pick from or roll on the shadow sorcerer quirks table to create a quirk for your character. Um, these are the quirks, actually. 1. You are always icy cold to the touch. 2. When you are asleep, you don't appear to breathe, though you must still breathe to survive. 3. You barely bleed even when badly injured. 4. Your heart beats once per minute. This event sometimes surprises you. 5. You have the trouble remembering that living creatures and corpses should be treated differently. And 6. You blinked. Once. Last week. Yep, those are the Shadow Sorcerer quirks. They're kind of interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Starting at first level, you have dark vision within a range of 120 feet. When you reach third level in this class of Sorcerer, using the Sorcerer's Origin called Shadow Magic, you can learn the Darkness spell, which does not count against your number of Sorcerer spells known. In addition, you can cast it by spending two sorcery points, or by expending a spell slot. If you cast it with sorcery points, you can see through the darkness created by the spell. If you cast it with a spell slot, you are affected by the darkness as everyone else is. At first level, you also have Strength of the Grave, which your existence in a twilight state between life and death makes you difficult to defeat. When damage brings you down to zero hit points, you can make a charisma saving throw, which would be DC 5, plus the damage taken. On a success, you drop instead to one hit point. You cannot use this feature if you are reduced to zero hit points by radiant damage or by a critical hit. After the saving throw succeeds, you cannot use this feature again until you finish a rest short. Or long, but not short. Hound of Ill Omen, where at 6th level, you gain the ability to call forth a howling creature of darkness to harass your foes. 
As a bonus action, you can spend three sorcery points to magically summon a Hound of Ill Omen to target one creature you can see within 120 feet of you. The Hound uses the Dire Wolf statistics, see the Monster Manual, or Appendix C in the Player's Handbook, with the following changes. The Hound is size medium, not large, and it counts as a monstrosity, not a beast. It appears with a number of temporary hit points equal to half of your sorcerer level. It can move through other creatures and objects, as if they were difficult terrain. The Hound takes five force damage if it ends its turn inside of an object. At the start of its turn, the Hound automatically knows its target's location. If the target was hidden, it is no longer hidden from the Hound. The Hound appears in an unoccupied space of your choice within 30 feet of the target. Roll initiative for the Hound. On its turn, it can move only toward its target by the most direct route, and it can use its action only to attack its target. The Hound can make opportunity attacks, but only against its target. Additionally, when the Hound is within 5 feet of its target, its target has disadvantage on saving throws against any spell you cast. The Hound disappears if it's hit, brought down to 0 hit points, if its target is brought down to 0 hit points, or after 5 minutes. At 14th level, you gain the ability to step from one shadow into another. Ooh. When you are in dim or dark light, or darkness, as a... Yeah, what the heck is dark light? Darkness. Uh, as a bonus action, you can magically teleport up to 120 feet to an unoccupied space you can see that's also in dim light or darkness. At 18th level, you can spend 6 sorcery points as a bonus action to magically transform yourself into a shadowy form. In this form, you have resistance to all damage except force and radiant damage, and you can move through other creatures and objects as if they were difficult terrain. You take 5 force damage and if you end your turn inside of an object, similar to the Hound of Ill Omen. You remain in this form for 1 minute. It ends early if you are incapacitated, if you die, or if you dismiss it as a bonus action. That is all for the Shadow Magic Sorceress Origin, and so next we will move on to Storm Sorcery. Your innate magic might come from the power of an elemental air as a storm sorcerer. Many with this power can trace their magic back to a near-death experience caused by the great rain, but perhaps you were born during a howling gale so powerful that the folks still tell stories of it. Or your lineage might include the influence of potent air creatures such as jinn. Whatever the case, the magic of the storm is one with your being. Storm sorcerers are invaluable members of a ship's crew. Their magic allows them to exert control over wind and weather in their immediate area. Their abilities also prove useful in repelling attacks by Sahaguin pirates and other waterborne threats. Some storm sorcery features include Windspeaker, where your arcane magic that you command is infused with elemental air. You can speak, read, and write primordial, knowing this language allows you to understand and be understood by those who speak its dialects. Aquan, Oren, Ignan, and Terran. You also have Tempestuous Magic, where starting at first level, you can use a bonus action on your turn to cause whirling gusts of elemental air to briefly surround you, immediately before or after you cast a spell of first level or higher. Doing so allows you to fly up to 10 feet without provoking opportunity attacks. At sixth level, you gain the ability Heart of the Storm, where you get resistance to lightning and thunder damage. In addition, 
whenever you cast start casting a spell that is of first level or higher, that deals lightning or thunder damage, stormy magic erupts from you. This eruption causes creatures of your choice that you can see within 10 feet of you to take lightning or thunder damage. Choose each time this ability activates, equal to half of your sorcerer level. So, at 6th level, when you gain this ability, that will deal 3 damage. At 6th level, you also gain the ability Storm Guide, where it allows you to subtly control the weather around you. If it is raining, you can use an action to cause the rain to stop falling in a 20-foot radius sphere centered on you, and you can end this effect as a bonus action. If it is windy, you can cause a bonus action to choose the direction that the wind blows in a 100-foot radius sphere centered on you. The wind blows in that direction until the end of your next turn. This feature does not alter the speed of the wind. Starting at 14th level, when you are hit by a melee attack, you can use your reaction to deal lightning damage to your attacker. The damage equals your sorcerer level, so 14th when you gain this ability. The attacker must also make a strength saving throw against your sorcerer spell, save DC. On a failed save, the attacker is pushed in a straight line up to 20 feet away from you. At 18th level, you gain immunity to lightning and thunder damage. You also gain a magical flying speed of 60 feet, and as an action, you can reduce your flying speed to 30 feet for one hour, and choose a number of creatures within 30 feet of you, equal to 3, plus your charisma modifier. The chosen creatures gain a magical flying speed of 30 feet for one hour. Once you reduce your flying speed in this way, you cannot do so again until you finish a rest, short or long. That's all for the sorcerer today. I really hope you enjoyed, and next we will be moving on to the background, Hermit. As a hermit, you live or lived in seclusion, either in a sheltered community, such as a monastery, or entirely alone, for a formative part of your life, and in your time apart from the clamor of society, you found quiet, solitude, and perhaps some of the answers you were looking for. You gained skill proficiencies with medicine and religion, tool proficiencies in the herbalism kit, languages, you gain one of your choice, and equipment, you gain a scroll case stuffed full of notes from your studies or prayers, a winter blanket, a set of common clothes, a herbalism kit, and five gold pieces, in addition to any equipment that you have bought from the equipment section. What was the reason for your isolation, and what changed to allow you to end your solitude? You can work with your dungeon master to determine the exact nature of your seclusion, or you can choose or roll on the table below to determine the reason behind your seclusion. This roll is a d8. 1. I was searching for spiritual enlightenment. 2. I was partaking of communal living in accordance with the dictates of a religious order. 3. I was exiled for a crime I did not commit. 4. I retreated from society after a life-altering event. 5. I needed a quiet place to work on my art, literature, music, or manifesto. 6. I needed to commune with nature, far from civilization. 7. I was the caretaker of an ancient ruin or relic. And 8. I was a pilgrim in search of a person, place, or relic of spiritual significance. Hermit feature, Discovery. The quiet seclusion of your extended hermitage gave you access to a unique and powerful discovery. The exact nature of this revelation depends on the nature of your seclusion. It might be a great truth about the cosmos, the deities, 
the powerful beings of the outer planes or the forces of nature it could be a sight that no one else has ever seen you might have uncovered a fact that had that could rewrite history you could have uncovered some relic of the past that has been long forgotten it might be information that would be damaging to the people who or people who or consigned you to exile and hence the reason for you to return to society work with your dungeon master to determine the details of your discovery and its impact on the campaign these are the suggested characteristics as some hermits are well suited to a life of seclusion and others chafe against it and long for company whether they embrace solitude or long to escape it the solitary life shapes their attitudes and ideals a few are driven slightly mad by their years apart from society these are your personality traits on the table at least you can work with your dungeon master to come up with your own and uh... yes these are just the eight on the personality trait table by the way this is a d8 if you would like to roll one i've been isolated for so long that i rarely speak preferring gestures and the occasional grunt Two. I am utterly serene, even in the face of disaster. 3. The leader of my community has something wise to say on every topic, and I am eager to share that wisdom. 4. I feel tremendous empathy for all who suffer. 5. I am oblivious to etiquette and social expectations. 6. I connect everything that happens to me to a grand cosmic plan. 7. I often get lost in my own thoughts and contemplation, becoming oblivious to my surroundings. And 8. I am working on a grand philosophical theory and love sharing my ideas. These are the six ideals on the table. D6 if you'd like to roll. 1. Greater good. 2. Logic. 3. Free thinking. 4. Power. 5. Live and let live. And 6. Self-knowledge. These are the six bonds. D6 if you'd like to roll. 1. Nothing is more important than the other members of my hermitage, order, or association. 2. I entered seclusion to hide from the ones who might still be hunting me. I must someday confront them. 3. I'm still sinking the enlightenment I pursued in my seclusion, and it still eludes me. 4. I entered seclusion because I loved someone I could not have. 5. Should my discovery come to light, it could bring ruin to the world. And 6. My isolation gave me great insight into an evil that only I can destroy. These are the six flaws on the table. D6, if, D6, if you would like to roll. 1. Now that I've returned to the world, I enjoy its delights a little too much. 2. I harbor a dark, bloodthirsty thought that my isolation and meditation failed to quell. 3. I am dogmatic in my thoughts and philosophy. 4. I let my needs to win arguments overshadow friendships and harmony. 5. I'd risk too much to uncover a lost bit of knowledge. And 6. I like keeping secrets and won't share them with anyone. Other Hermits The hermit background assumes a contemplative sort of seclusion that allows room for study and prayer. If you want to play a rugged wilderness recluse who lives off the land while shunning the company of other people, look at the Outlander background. On the other hand, if you want to go in a more religious direction, the acolyte might be what you're looking for. Or you could even be a charlatan, posing as a wise and holy person, and letting pious fools support you. That's all we have for the noble today, and so we will be moving on to our race, the gnome. When you think of gnome, some people will think of garden gnomes, 
like Romeo and Juliet gnomes. Others might think of other kinds of gnomes similar to that, like with the pointy hats and long noses, bushy beards. However, gnomes in Dungeons and Dragons are interesting. See, yes, they are frequently small, smaller than most humans, at least. Humans, orcs, humanoids, at least. And are very dedicated to whatever tasks they have at hand, whether that be jokes, pranks, puns, or an adventure, an assassination, a treasure hunt, anything. And they frequently take bold and sometimes foolhardy risks and find themselves dreaming quite large. Gnomes frequently make their homes in hilly, wooded lands and live underground but get more fresh air than dwarves do, enjoying the natural living world on the surface whenever they can. Gnomes who settle in human lands are commonly gem cutters, engineers, sages, or tinkers. Some human families retain gnome tutors, ensuring that their pupils enjoy a mix of serious learning and delighted enjoyment. Gnomes love names, and most have half a dozen or so. A gnome's mother, father, clan elder, aunts, and uncles can each give the gnome a name, and various nicknames, from just about everyone else might or might not stick over time. When dealing with humans and others who are stuffy about names, a gnome learns to use no more than three names, a personal name, a clan name, and a nickname, choosing the one in each category that's the most fun to say. Due to the um, pronunciation of some of these words, I will not be pronouncing them. I'm sorry if you wanted me to say these words. I don't want to accidentally say anything offending or insulting. Offensive, sorry for that. See, I am prone to mispronounce things. Uh, this is why I will not pronounce the gnome names. Your gnome character has certain characteristics in common with all other gnomes. Ability score increase. Your intelligence score increases by two. Gnomes mature at the same rate as humans, and most are expected to settle down into adult life by around age 40. They can live 350 to almost 500 years. Gnomes are most often good. Those who tend toward law are sages, engineers, researchers, scholars, investigators, or inventors. Those who tend towards chaos are minstrels, tricksters, wanderers, or fanciful jewelers. Gnomes are good-hearted, and even the tricksters among them are more playful than vicious. Gnomes are between 3 and 4 feet tall, and averages about 40 pounds for weight. This, your size, is small. Unlike humans and other humanoids, who are usually medium, but some are small, such as dwarves and halflings. Your base walking speed is around 25 feet, but you're not around, but exactly 25 feet. Accustomed to life underground, you have superior vision in dark and dim conditions. You can see in dim light within 60 feet of you as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. You can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. You have advantage on all intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saving throws against magic. You can speak, read, and write common and gnomish. The gnomish language, which uses the dwarvish script, is renowned for its technical treatises, 
and its catalogs of knowledge about the natural world. Sorry if I pronounced something in there wrong. Um, and your subraces. Two subraces of gnome are found among the worlds of D&D. Forest gnomes and rock gnomes. Well, also deep gnomes, but those are found to be the evil Sverf Neblin. Your subraces are forest gnome or rock gnome, where as a forest gnome, you have a natural knack for illusion and inherent quickness and stealth. In the worlds of D&D, forest gnomes are rare and secretive. They gather in hidden communities in sylvan forests, using illusions and trickery to conceal themselves from threats or to mask their escape should they be detected. Forest gnomes tend to be friendly with other good-spirited woodland folk, and they regard elves as and good fae as their most important allies. These gnomes also befriend small forest animals and rely on them for information about threats that might prowl their lands. Your dexterity score increases by one. You know the minor illusion cantrip. Intelligence is your spellcasting ability for it. Through sounds and gestures, you can communicate simple ideas with small or smaller beasts. Forest gnomes love animals and often keep squirrels, badgers, rabbits, moles, woodpeckers, and other creatures as beloved pets. The rock gnome. As a rock gnome, you have a natural inventiveness and hardiness beyond that of other gnomes. Most gnomes in the world of D&D are rock gnomes, including the tinker gnomes of the Dragonlance setting. Your constitution increases by one instead of dexterity. Whenever you make an intelligence or history check to related items, alchemical objects, or technological devices, you can add twice your proficiency bonus instead of any proficiency bonus you would normally apply. You have proficiency with artisan's tools, or tinker tools. Using these tools, you can spend one hour and ten gold piece worth of materials to construct a tiny clockwork device with armor class five and one hit point. The device ceases to function after 24 hours unless you spend an hour repairing it to keep the device functioning, or when you use your action to dismantle it. At that time, you can reclaim the materials used to create it. You can have up to three such devices active at a time. Clockwork toy, which this is a clockwork toy. Usually an animal, monster, or person, such as a frog, mouse, bird, dragon, or soldier. When placed on the ground, the toy moves five feet across the ground on each of your turns in a random direction. It makes noises as appropriate to the creature it represents. A fire starter, which the device produces a miniature flame which you can use to light a candle, torch, or campfire. Using the device requires your action. Music box. When open, this music box plays a single song at a moderate volume. The box stops playing when it reaches the song's end or when it is closed. Those are the those are the clockwork devices that you can build, or some of them at least, unless the dungeon master allows more. And that is all for the gnome race. So next we will move on to our first of two monsters today, the water weird. A water weird is an elemental guardian bound to a specific water-filled location, such as a pool or fountain. Invisible while immersed in water, its serpentine shape becomes clear only when it emerges to attack, using its coils to crush any creature other than its summoner and those its summoner declares as off-limits. When slain, a water weird becomes an inanimate pool of water. Good and Evil Weirds Like most elementals, a water weird has no concept of good or evil. However, a water weird bound to a sacred or befouled source of water begins to take on the nature of that site, becoming neutral good or neutral evil. A neutral good water weird tries to frighten away interlopers rather than kill them. 
well a neutral lever of water weird killed its victims for pleasure and might turn against its summoner a water weird loses its evil alignment if its waters are cleansed with a purify food and drink spell a water weird does not require air food drink or sleep and they are completely invisible in water and water bound where the water weird dies if it leaves the water to which it is bound or if that water is destroyed for our second monster we have the fairy dragon a fairy dragon is a cat-sized dragon with butterfly wings it wears a sharp tooth grin and expresses its delight by the twitching of its tail its merriment fading only if it is attacked the only warning of a fairy dragon's presence is a stifled giggle the dragon stays out of sight, watching invisibly as its victims contend with its pranks. When its fun is done, the dragon might reveal itself, depending on the disposition of its prey. A fairy dragon has a sharp mind, a fondness for treasure and good company, and a puckish sense of humor. Travelers can play to a fairy dragon's draconic nature by offering it treasure in the form of sweets, baked goods, and baubles in exchange for information or safe passage through its territory. A fairy dragon's scales change hue as it ages, moving through all the colors of the rainbow. All fairy dragons have innate spellcasting ability, gaining new spells as they mature. The dragon color being red if it's five years or less, orange if it's six to ten years, yellow eleven to twenty, green twenty-one to thirty, blue thirty-one to forty, indigo forty-one to fifty, and violet fifty-one years or more. They also have superior invisibility, where as a bonus action, the dragon can magically turn invisible until its concentration ends, as if concentration, concentrating on a spell. Any equipment the dragon wears or carries is invisible with it. Using telepathy, the dragon can magically communicate with any other fairy dragon within 60 feet of it. The dragon has advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. And the dragon's innate spellcasting ability is charisma. Spell save DC 13. It can innately cast a number of spells, requiring no material components. As the dragon ages and changes color, it gains additional spells, and this means red, one per day each, dancing lights, mage hand, and minor illusion. Orange, it gains once per day color spray. Yellow, it gains once per day mirror image. At green, it gains once per day suggestion. Blue, once per day major image indigo once per day hallucinatory terrain and violet once per day polymorph i really hope you enjoyed today's episode and yes i may give you a hint to next episode if you wish to avoid listening to this hint i'd suggest leaving the episode now if you would like to listen to the hint i will speak of it in 10 seconds giving you time to leave one two Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you're hearing this, you should have stayed in the episode and instead of leaving, wanted to listen to my hint. Next Sunday, I will be discussing, and this hint is for the monster, gargoyles. I hope you enjoy next episode as well as this one. Farewell, adventurers.